Good morning, everyone. Like I did before on some of the uh, founders of the Reformation, the Four Horsemen, I wanted to give you an introduction also to Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon was born in Essex, England in 1834 and lived it till 1892 to 57 years of age. His father and grandfather were also independent pastors who had to flee the persecution in the continent of Europe to come to England. He's the eldest of 17 children. His youngest brother served as a co-pastor with him, and his twin sons would follow him into the ministry. In 1850, at the age of 15, he was walking to a church, and a snowstorm diverted his course to a church where a lay person was teaching and was teaching on Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Only a dozen people were in attendance, and the preacher looked at him and said, young man, look to Jesus, look and live. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon wrote, I saw at once the way of salvation. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. At 16, he preached his first sermon. At age 17, he was a pastor at a church in a rural Baptist church in England. He was truly being gifted by God. And rumors of his teaching, this rural teacher had reached London. He was invited. Oh, in two years, he grew that church from 400 to 100 members. And then he was invited to preach at the New Park Street Chapel Church at age 19 in London, England. It was the largest Calvinist church in the city. The church that could seat 1,200 at one time was full, but now had dwindled its attendance down to 200. After three months of a six-month invitation, he was invited to become a pastor, which he accepted and remained its pastor for the next 38 years. Within a month, within months, the attendance grew from 200 to 500. In one year, it had grown to 2,000. Remember, it only seated 1,200. So 800 people are standing every Sunday to hear his message. They had to issue free tickets to control the crowd, even for the midweek service. Soon, the crowds forced the church to move to a public building, Exeter Hall, which seated 4,000 and room for 1,000 to stand. Still, hundreds were turned away. They next moved to a larger venue, Music Hall. It seated 12,000. And on its first Sunday, it was filled to capacity with 10,000 people standing on the outside trying to listen in. He was only 22 years old. He did not have any theological training, but at the age of 22, he started a pastoral college. After England had a terrible defeat in India, October 7, 1857, was declared a day of humiliation. And at the age of 23, Spurgeon spoke to the nation from Crystal Palace to 23,654 people, the largest indoor crowd of its day. He preached on Micah 6, 9. 
Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it, a strong declaration of the sovereignty of God over England, and the defeat was from God to humble a proud nation. His sermons were printed every Thursday, and 25,000 copies were sold every week in London for a penny, thus the penny pulpit. The messages were cabled to America, Australia, and New Zealand, and printed in large newspapers. They were eventually translated into 40 languages. They were used by missionaries, read in hospitals, in prisons, and preached by other pastors. When David Livingston died in Africa, they cut his heart out, buried it in Africa, which was his request, and his body that was then sent back to England to be buried in Westminster Abbey. Amongst his possessions was a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. It was given to Spurgeon, which he treasured, knowing that words God was reaching the farthest, cor- farthest corners of the world. Through the printed page, Charles Spurgeon's followers numbered one million people. In 1860, he preached from Calvin's pulpit in Geneva and was given the rare honor to wear Calvin's robe and he was welcomed as a second Calvin. At age 27, in 1861, a new church was completed, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the largest Protestant church in the world. His first sermon he preached was on an exposition of the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. It was a declaration of what his ministry was about, the sovereign grace of God. And then he had five hand-selected ministers preach on each point. The tabernacle seated 6,000, and it was filled every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, for the rest of his ministry for the next 31 years. Once a quarter, he asked his members to not attend to make room for the unconverted. During his ministry, just to name a few, he founded a boys' orphanage, a girls' orphanage, and an almshouse for the poor. In 1887, at the age of 53, he entered what became known as the downgrade controversy with the Baptist Union. He defended the teaching of the gospel, which was being de-emphasized or downgraded. He was censured or kicked out from the Baptist Union. And by a twist of fate, his brother casted the deciding vote when he thought it was a vote for reconciliation. It grieved Spurgeon so much being censured from the Baptist Union, which he loved, that four years later, his wife said he died literally of a broken heart at the age of 57. His last sermon was in June of 1891, and he died on the French Riviera trying to recover from his declining health seven months later in 1892 at 57. A funeral was held in France, then his body was brought back to England where four funerals were held on February 10th, 1892. One for his members of his beloved church, one for the ministers and the students, one for the Christian workers, and one for the general public. A sixth and final funeral was held the next day. 60,000 people paid their respects. The funeral procession was two miles long, and the streets were lined by over 100,000 people. Flags flew at half-staff. The shops were closed. It was as if a member of the royal family had died. 
And the Bible on top of the coffin was opened up to Isaiah 45, 22. Look to the Lord. In his lifetime, he saw his church grow from 200 members to almost 6,000 members. He took in over 15,000 members during that time frame, 11,000 of them by baptism. He addressed over 10 million people, and one of his twin sons succeeded him at the pulpit, and his other son became the head of the orphanages. By age 29, he had sold more than 8 million sermon copies. At the time of his death, he had sold over 50 million copies. By the end of the 19th century, just eight years after his death, 100 million copies had been sold and translated into 23 languages, a figure unmatched. Today, it's up to 300 million copies of his sermons have been sold. 100 years after his death, which would be 1992, there were more Spurgeon works in Sprint in in print than in any, by any English-speaking author. Spurgeon is history's most widely read preacher. He wrote 135 books, edited 28, and wrote countless tracts and articles. His body of work is the largest in Christian history. He has over 3,800 messages in print comprising 63 volumes, and they're only the 50 top sermons he preached each year, so it's not all of his sermons. In 1866, he developed the wordless book, which aided missionaries. One that he supported was James Hudson Taylor of the China Inland Mission, and it's still used today as an evangelistic tool. And our dear sister Lois is the one that introduced me to the wordless book when she was trying to evangelize me. And you can see it here being used by the Chinese, and it's on a stick, and the wordless book is a book of different colors, black, red, and white. And you can figure out how you can speak to those colors as you're evangelizing to people that don't have a language uh, that makes it hard to communicate with, and this is a way to communicate people. This is still an evangelistic tool, as I mentioned, still used today. So do you see why he is known as the Prince of Preachers? But he also had adversity in his life. His wife became an invalid, giving birth to the twins, and thereafter she was unable to attend church to hear him preach. 10,000 died of the plague in London his first year in London, many in his own church as he ministered to them in their homes. There were three attempts on his life. He was almost stabbed with a knife, bludgeoned with a stick, and blown, by, blown up by a bomb. And when he preached against slavery, the southern states in the U.S. said if he visited them, he would be hung from the neck. He never did travel to the U.S., but that wasn't the reason, even though he had many invitations. His wife would hide the newspaper from him when there was derogatory headlines about Spurgeon, and there were many. Remember when I mentioned the church that had moved to Music Hall with 12,000 and 10,000 standing outside? Well, that first Sunday, a detractor yelled, Fire! Seven people died in the panic of the stampede. That incident had a life-lasting impact on Spurgeon, and he contemplated quitting. But one week was missed for repairs and was back in the pulpit one week later. So the question has to be asked, what made his preaching so compelling? Steve Lawson tells us in his book on Spurgeon, when Charles Spurgeon burst on the scene in the mid-19th century, 
he appeared heralding the doctrines of sovereign grace. At the time, Calvinism was no longer the dominant theology in England. It had been as it had been in Puritan times. Instead, the doctrines of grace were becoming obscured from public view, cast aside as a dusty and archaic relic of the primitive 16th century Europe. Victorian England had come of age. It was supposed, and its philosophers championed the autonomy of man, not the sovereignty of God. The teaching of the Reformation had all but faded from the evangelical scene. Spurgeon stated, There is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism, but Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe that we preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and the chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend the gospel which allows the saints to fall away after they are called. Though he considered himself a staunch Calvinist, Spurgeon asserted, I believe nothing merely because Calvin taught it, but because I found the teaching in the word of God. There's the doctrines of grace in one Bible verse, John 6, 44. You could say Jesus Christ was a Calvinist. But we know Calvin's a Christian, and Charles Spurgeon is a Christian. Spurgeon goes on. The old truth that Calvin preached, that Augustine preached, that Paul preached, is the truth that I must preach today or else be false to my conscience and my God. I cannot shape the truth. I know of no such thing as paring off the rough edges of the doctrine. John Knox's gospel is my gospel. That which thundered through Scotland must thunder through England too. So I wanted you to learn how Charles Spurgeon preached. And I've invited Charles Spurgeon to come here and preach today. You can you'll hopefully hear the passion and what made him a prince of preacher. Mr. Spurgeon? <laughs> Hello, everyone. I am Charles Spurgeon. I want to take you back to Exeter Hall on Christmas morning in 1859. There are 4,000 seated and 1,000 standing, awaiting to hear my Christmas message. I was only 25 years old at the time when I gave this message. Remember now, back then, we had no way of amplifying our voices, but had to learn to project our voices so all could hear. I titled this message, A Christmas Question. I know it's been 158 years since I gave this message, but I believe the message is timeless, and I would like to give it to you again today. I trust you can understand my 19th century English. A Christmas question. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Upon other occasions I have explained the main part of this verse. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
But now this morning, the portion which we all gauge in our attention is, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is a double sentence, but it has no redundancy. The careful reader will soon discover a distinction. It is not a distinction without a difference. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. As Jesus Christ is a child in his human nature, he is born, conceived of the whole, by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He is as truly born as certainly a child as any other man that ever lived upon the face of the earth. He is thus in his humanity a child born. But as Jesus Christ is God's son, he is not born but given. Begotten of his father from before all worlds, begotten, not made, being the same substance with the father. The doctrine of eternal affiliation of Christ is to be received as an undoubted truth of our holy religion. But as to any explanation of it, no man should venture thereof. For it remaineth among the deep things of God, one of those solemn mysteries indeed in which the angels dare not look or ne'er dare pry into, a mystery which we must not attempt to fathom, for it is utterly beyond the grasp of a finite being. As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean, a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we, can, we could understand would not be a God. If we could grasp him, he would not be infinite. If we could understand him, he would not be divine. Jesus Christ, as a son, is not born to us, but given. He is a blessing bestowed on us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to the world. He was not born into this world as God's son, but he was sent or was given so that we could clearly perceive the distinction. To us, a child is born to us a son is given. This morning, however, the principal object of my discourse, and indeed the sole one, is to bring out the full force of these two little words, to us. For here you will perceive that, that here the full force of the passage lies. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. The divisions of my discourse are very simple ones. First, is it so? Secondly, if it's so, what then? And thirdly, if it's not so, what then? In their first place, is it so? Is it so that to us a child is born and to us a son is given? It is a fact that a child is born. Upon that I use no argument. We receive it as a fact more fully established than any other fact in history. That the Son of God became man, was born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in a manger. It is also a fact that a son is given. About that, we have no question. The unbeliever may dispute, but we, professing to be believers in the Scripture, receive it as undeniable truth, that God has given his only begotten Son to be the Savior of the world. But the matter of the question is this. Is this child born to us? Is this son given to us? This is a matter of most anxious inquiry. Have we a personal interest in this child that was born in Bethlehem? Do we know that he is our Savior? 
that he has brought glad tidings to us, that to us he belongs, and that we belong to him. I say this matter of very grave and solemn investigation. It is a very observable fact that the very best of men are sometimes troubled with questions with regard to their own interest in Christ. And while men who never are troubled at all about the matter are very frequently presumptuous deceivers who have no part in this matter. I have often observed that some of the people whom I felt most sure were the very persons who were the least sure themselves. It reminds me of the story of a godly man named Simon Brown, a minister of the olden days in the city of London. He became extremely sad in his heart, so depressed in his spirit that he last, at last had conceived the idea that his soul had been annihilated. It was all in vain to talk to the good man. You could not persuade him that he had a soul. But all the while he was preaching and praying and working, he preached more like a man with two souls than none. When he preached, his eyes poured forth plenteous floods of tears, and when he prayed, there was a divine fervor and a heavenly prevalence in every petition. Now, so it is with many Christians. They seem to be the very picture of godliness, their life admirable, and their conversion heavenly, yet they are always crying. This is a point I long to know, often causes anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? So it does happen that the best of men will question and the worst of men will presume. Yes, I have seen persons about whose eternal destiny I had serious questioning, whose inconsistencies in life were evident and glaring, yet who talked with assurance of their infallible hope in Christ as though they believed others to be as easily duped as themselves. Now, what reason should we give for this foolhardiness? Learn it from this illustration. You see a number of men riding along a narrow road upon the edge of the sea. It is a very perilous path, for the way is rugged, and a tremendous precipice bounds the pathway on the left. Let but the horse's foot slip once, and they dash downwards to destruction. See how cautiously the riders journey. See how carefully the horses place their feet. But do you observe Jan yonder? At what a rate he dashes along, as if a, he were riding a steeplechase with Satan. You hold up your hands in agonies of fear, trembling at least at every moment his force, horse's foot should slip, and he should be dashed down. And you say, why so careless a rider? Why is he riding, riding so fast? The man is a blind reader, rider on a blind horse. They cannot see where they are. He thinks he's on a safe road, and therefore that is why he rides so fast. Or to vary the picture, sometimes when persons are asleep, they begin sleepwalking, and they will climb where others would dare not think venturing. Giddy heights that would turn our brain seem safe enough to them. So there are many spiritual sleepwalkers in our midst and who think they are awake, but they are not. They are very presumptuous in venturing to the high places of self-confidence, proves that they are not awake, but men who walk and talk in their sleep. It is, then, I say, a really, a, really a matter of serious questioning with all men who would be, who would be right at last 
as to whether this child is born to us and this son is given to us. Now I shall help you answer the question. If this child, who now lies before our eyes of faith, swathed in clothes in Bethlehem's manger, if this child is born to you, my hearer, then you are born again. For this child is not born to you unless you are born to the child. All who have an interest in Christ are in the fullness of time, by grace, converted, quickened, and renewed. All redeemed are not yet converted, but they will be. Before the hour of death arrives, their nature will be changed, their sins washed away, and they shall pass from death unto life. If any man tells me that Christ is his redeemer, although he has never experienced regeneration, that man utters what he does not know. His religion is in vain, and his hope is a delusion. Only men who are born again can claim the babe in Bethlehem as being theirs. But, says one, how do I knew, know whether I'm born or not? Born again or not? Answer the question also by another. Has there been a change effected by divine grace within you? Are your loves the very opposite of what they were? Do you now hate the vain things you once admired? And do you seek after the precious pearl which you at once despised? Is your heart thoroughly renewed in its object? Can you say that the bent of your desire is changed, that your face is heavenward and your feet are set upon the path of grace, that whereas your heart once longed for deep draughts of sin, it now longs to be holy? Have the pleasures of the world that you once loved become as debris and waste to you? Do you only love the pleasures of things, of heavenly things? Are you longing to enjoy them more here on earth so that you may be prepared to enjoy them in the fullness in heaven? Are you renewed within? Mark this, my hearers. The new birth does not consist in washing the outside of the cup, but in cleansing the inner man. It was all in vain to put up the stone on the sepulcher and wash it extremely white and garnish it with flowers for the season, but the sepulcher itself must be washed. The, man's, the dead man's bones that lie in that vault of the human heart must be cleansed away. Nay, they must be made to live. The heart must no longer be a tomb of death, but a temple of life. Is it so with you, my hearer? For remember, you may be different on the outside, but if you are not changed on the inside, this child is not born to you. But I state another question. Although the main matter of regeneration lies within, yet it manifests itself on the outside. I say then, has there been a change in your exterior? Do you think that others who look at you would be compelled to say, this man is not what he used to be? Do, you, do your companions observe a change? Have they not laughed at you for what they think to be your hypocrisy, your puritanism, your sternness? Do you think now that if an angel would follow you into your secret life, should track you to your closet and see you on your knees, that he would detect something in you that he has never seen before? Four, mark this, my dear hearers, there must be a change in the outward life or else there is no change within. The proof of the Christian is in the living. To other men, the proof of our conversion is not what 
we believe or feel, but what we do. To yourself, your feelings may be good enough of evidence, but to the minister and to others who judge you, the outward walk is the main guide. At the same time, let me observe that a man's outward life may very much look like that of a Christian, and yet there may be no religion in him at all. Have you ever seen two jugglers in the street with swords pretending to fight with one another? See how they cut and slash and hack at each other till you are afraid there will soon be a murder done. They seem to be very much in earnest that you are in half a mind to call the police to part them. See with what violence that one has aimed a terrific blow at the other one's head, which his comrade dexterously warded off, keeping a well-timed guard. But just watch them a minute. And you will see that these cuts and thrusts are in a prearranged order. There is no heart in the fighting at all. They do not fight so roughly as if they were real enemies. See, sometimes I have seen, so sometimes I have seen many men pretending to be angry against sin. But watch them a little while, and you will see it's a fencer's trick. He does not give his cuts out of order, there is no earnestness in his blows. It is all a pretense. It's all a mimic stage play. The fencers, after they have ended their performance, shake hands with one another and divide the money, which the gaping, gapping throng have given them. And this man does the same thing. He shakes his hand with the devil in private. The two deceivers share the spoil. The hypocrite and the devil are very good friends after all, and they mutually rejoice in their profits. The devil leering, rejoicing because he has won the soul of one who professed to be a Christian, and the hypocrite laughing because he has won himself again. Take care, then, that your outward life is not a mere stage play, but that your antagonism to sin is real and intense, and that you strike it right and left, as though you meant to slay the monster, the monster of sin, and cast its limbs to the winds of heaven. I will just ask another question. If thou hast been born again, there is another matter by which to try thee. Not only is thy inward self altered, and the outward self too, but the very principle, the root of the principle of thy life must become totally new. When we are in sin, we live to self, but when we are renewed, we live to God. While we are unregenerate, our principles is to seek our own pleasure, our own advancement. But the man is not truly born again who does not live far away from the different aims from this. Change a man's principles and you will change his feelings and you will change his actions. Now grace changes the principle of a man. It lays the ax at the root of the tree. It does not saw away at some big limb. It does not try to alter the sap but it gives a new root and plants us in fresh topsoil. The man's inmost self, the deep rocks of his principles of which the topsoil of his actions rest, the soul of his manhood is thoroughly changed. He is a new creature in Christ. But someone says, I, know, I see no reason why I must be born again. Oh, poor creature. It's because you've never really seen thyself. Did you ever look at a man in the mirror of the word of God? What a strange monster he is. Do you know a man by nature has his heart where his feet ought to be? 
That is to say, his heart is set upon the earth, whereas it ought to be treading beneath its feet. And stranger mystery still, his heels are where his heart should be. That is to say, he is kicking against the God of heaven. And when he ought to be setting his affections on the things above. Man, by nature, when he sees clearest, only looks down. Can only see what is beneath him. He cannot see the things which are above. And strange to say, the sunlight of heaven blinds him. Light from heaven he looks not for. He asks for his light in darkness. The earth to him is his heaven. He sees sun in its muddy pools and the stars in its filth. He is, in fact, a man turned upside down. The fall has so ruined our nature that the most monstrous thing on the face of the earth is a fallen man. The peoples of long ago used to paint monsters, dragons, and ghosts, and all kinds of hideous things. But if a skillful hand could paint man accurately, none of us would look at the picture. For it is a sight that none have ever saw except the lost in hell. And that is one of the parts of the intolerable pain, that they are compelled to always look at themselves. Now then, don't you see that you must be born again? And unless you do so, this child is not born to you. But I go forward. If this child is born to you, you are a child. And the question arises... Are you so? Man grows from childhood to manhood naturally. In grace, we grow from manhood down to childhood. And the nearer we come true to being true children, the nearer we come to the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters, can you say that you have been made into children? Do you take God's word just as it stands and simp- simply because your heavenly Father says so? Are you content to believe the mysteries without demanding them to be explained? Are you ready to sit in the infant class and be a little one? Are you willing to hang upon the breasts of the church and suck the unadulterated milk of the word? Never questioning for a moment what your divine Lord reveals, but believing in it on its own authority, whether it seemed to be above reason, below reason, or contrary to reason. Now, unless you change and become as little children, this child, this child is not born to you. Unless you are humble like a little child, teachable, obedient, pleased with your father's will, and willing to devote everything to him, there is serious doubt that whether this child is born to you. But what a pleasing sight it is to see a man converted and made into a child. Many times my heart has leaped for joy when I have seen a giant unbeliever who used to reason against God, who had not a word in his dictionary bad enough for Christ's people, come by divine grace to believe the gospel. That man sits down and weeps, feels the power of his salvation, and from that time forward drops all questioning and becomes the very opposite of what he was. He thinks of himself as the lowest of the lowest believers. He is content to do the lowliest work of the church of Christ and takes his place not with Locke or Newton as a mighty Christian philosopher, but with Mary as a simple learner sitting at the feet of the cross to learn from him. If you are not children, then this child is not born to you. And now let us take the second sentence and ask a question or two. Is this son given to us? I pause a minute to beg your personal attention 
I am trying, if I may, so to preach that I may make you all question yourselves. I pray that none of you exempt yourself from this ordeal, but let each one ask himself, if it is true that to me a son is given, ask to me, is a son given? Now, if this son is given to you, you are a son yourself. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Christ became a son so that in all things he might be made like his brethren. The son of God is not mine to enjoy, to delight in, unless I am a son of God too. Now, my hearer, have you a fear of God before your eyes, a respectful fear, a fear which a child has or else it would grieve its parent? Do you have a child's love for God? Do you trust him as your father, your provider, and your friend? Do you have in your heart the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father? Are there times when you are not on your knees that you can say, are there times when you are on your knees that you can say, my Father and my God? Does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are born of God? And while the witness is being confirmed in your heart, does your heart fly up to the Father and to your God in ecstasy of delight to embrace him who long ago embraced you in the covenant of his love and his arms of effectual grace? Now listen, my hearer, if you do not sometimes enjoy the spirit of adoption, if you are not, you are not the son of a if you are not a son or daughter of God, then don't deceive yourself. This son is not given to you. And then to put it another way, if to us a son is given, then we are given to the son. Now what do you have to say to this question? Are you given up to Christ? Do you feel that you have nothing on earth to live for except to glorify him? Can you say in your heart, great God, if I be not deceived, then I am wholly yours. Are you ready today to renew your vow of commitment to Christ? Can you say, take me, all that I am and all that I have shall be forever yours. I give up all my goods, all my powers, all my time, and all my hours, and I will be yours, wholly yours. For you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And if this Son of God is given to you, you have consecrated your whole self, yourself wholly to him, and you will feel that his honor is your life's goal and that his glory is the one great desire of your panting spirit. Now, is it true, my hearer? Ask yourself the question, I pray for you that you do not deceive yourself in the answer. I will repeat the four different proofs again. If unto me a child is born, then I have been born again. And I am now in consequence of that new birth, a child. If a son has been given to me, then I am a son. And I am given to that son who is given to me. I've tried to put these tests in the ways that the text would suggest them. I pray that you carry them home with you. If you do not remember the words, yet do remember to search yourselves and to see, my hearers, whether you can say, unto me 
this son is given. For indeed, if Christ is not my Christ, he is of little worth to me. If I cannot say he loved me and gave himself for me, of what use is the value of his righteousness or all the fullness of his atonement? The bread in the shop is well enough, but if I am hungry and cannot get it, I starve, though the stores be full. Water in the river is well enough, but if I am in the desert and can't reach the stream, if I can hear it in the distance and am yet lying down and dying of thirst, the rippling brook of the, or the flowing of the river helps to tantalize me as I die in dark despair. It would be better for you, my hearers, if you had perished as pagans to have gone to your graves in far some God, godless land than to have lived where the name of Christ is continuously sung in the churches and where his glory is exalted, yet go down to your tombs without any interest in him, unblessed by his gospel, unwashed by his blood, and unclothed by his robe of righteousness. May God help you that you may be blessed in him and swing, sing sweetly, to us a child has been born, to us a son has been given. This brings me to my second point upon which I'll be brief. If it is so, if it is so, what then? If it is so, why am I doubtful today? Why is my spirit questioning? Why don't I realize the fact? My hearer, if the Son is given to you, how is it that you are today asking whether Christ is yours or not? Why do you not labor to make your calling and election sure? Why do you remain in the plains of doubt? Get up on the high mountains of confidence and never rest till you can say without fear that you are mistaken. I know that my Redeemer lives. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed to him. I may have a large number of persons here whom it is a matter of uncertainty as to whether Christ is theirs or not. Oh, my dear hearers, rest not content unless you know assuredly that Christ is yours and that you are Christ. Suppose you should see in tomorrow's newspaper Although, by the way, you don't want to believe anything you see in the paper. It would probably be mistaken. But suppose you should see a notification that some rich man had left you an immense estate. Suppose as you read it, you were well aware that the person mentioned was a relative, is you, a relative is your, of yours, and it most likely would be true. It may be you have prepared tomorrow for a family meeting, and you are expecting Brother John and Sister Mary and their little ones to dine with you. But I would guess that you would rather miss the dinner in order to go and determine whether the fact was really true. Oh, you would have to say to John and Mary, I am sure that I would enjoy Christmas much better if I were quite sure about this matter of inheritance. And all day, if you did not go, you would be on pins and needles until you knew whether the fact was true or not. Now, there is a proclamation that's gone forth today, and this is true one too. That, the Jesus, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. The question to you is whether he has saved you and whether you have an interest in him. I beg you, give no sleep and no slumber to your eyelids till you have read the clear titles of the mansions in the skies. What man shall you enter into eternal destiny? Shall your eternal destiny be a matter of uncertainty to you? What is heaven or hell involved in this matter? And will you rest until you know which of these shall be your everlasting portion? Are you content while, 
it is a question whether God loves you or is whether God is angry with you? Can you be at ease while you remain in doubt as to whether you are condemned to sin or justified by faith, which is in Jesus Christ? Get up, man. I beg by the living God and for your own soul's safety, get up and read the records. Search and look and try and test yourself, whether it be so or not. For it is so, why shouldn't we know it? If the son is given to me, why shouldn't I be sure of it? If the child is born to me, why shouldn't I know it more certainly? That I may even now live in the enjoyment of my privilege, a privilege, the value of which I shall never know to the full until I arrive in glory. Again, if it is so, another question. Why are we sad? I am looking upon the faces right now, and they appear the very reverse of gloomy. But perhaps the smile covers an aching heart. Brothers and sisters, why are we sad this morning? If to us a child is born, and if to us a son is given. Listen, listen to the cry. It is harvest time. It is harvest time. See the maidens as they dance, the men as they make merry. And why the celebration? Because they are storing the precious fruits of the earth. They are gathering together unto their barns the wheat, the wheat which will soon be consumed. And what, brothers and sisters? We have the bread which endureth to eternal life. Are we unhappy? Doesn't the world rejoice when it harvests its corn? Then why don't we rejoice when to us a child is born, to us a son is given? Listen, listen to the distant sounds. What means the firing of the tower guns? Why are all the ringings of the bells of the church steeples if all of London were mad with joy? There is a prince born. Therefore, there is a salute. And therefore, the bells are ringing. Yes, Christians, ring the bells of your hearts. Fire the salute of your most joyous songs. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Dance, O oh my heart, and ring out peals of gladness. Ye drops of bloods in my veins. Dance, every one of you. Oh, all my nerves become harp strings. And let gratitude touch you with angelic fingers. And you, my tongue, shout, shout to praise who has said to you, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Wipe away the tears. Come, stop the sighing. Hush your murmuring. What does it matter that you are poor? To you a child is born. What does it matter that you are sick? To you a son is given. What does it matter that you are a sinner? For this child will take the sin away, and his son will wash and make you fit for heaven. I say it, if it be so... Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice aloud, you saints, rejoice. But once more, if it is true, what then? Why are our hearts so cold? Why, are we, why is it that we do so little for him who has done so much for us? Jesus, are you mine? Am I saved? How is it that I love you so little? Why is it that when I preach, I'm not more passionate? And when I pray, I'm not more fervent? How is it that we give so little to Christ who gave himself for us? How is it that we serve him so sadly when he serves us so perfectly? He consecrated himself wholly. Why is it that our consecration is imperfect and incomplete? We are continually sacrificing to self and not to him. Oh, beloved brethren, yield yourselves up this morning. What have you got in this world? Oh, says one, I have nothing. I am poor and penniless and all but homeless. Give yourself to Christ. 
You've heard of the story of the pupils of the Greek philosopher. On a certain day, it was a custom to give the philosopher a present. One came and gave him gold. Another could bring no gold but brought silver. One brought him a robe and another brought him a delicacy of food. Oh, sir. But one came up to him and said, Oh, sir, I am poor. I have nothing to give you. But yet I will give you something better than all these have given you. I give myself. Now, if you have gold and silver, if you have plenty of the world's wealth, then give it to Christ in proportion as you received. But take care above all that you give yourself to him and let your cry be from this day forth, do I love thee, dearest Lord? Oh, search my heart and see and turn each cursed idol out that dares to rival thee. Do not I love thee from my soul, then let me nothing love. Dead be my heart to every joy when Jesus cannot move. Well, now I'm almost done, but please give me your solemn, very solemn attention while I make my last point. If it is not so, what then? Dear here, I cannot tell where you are, but wherever you are in this hall, the eyes of my heart are looking for you, that when they have seen you, they may weep over you. Ah, miserable wretch, without a hope, without Christ, without God. To you there is no Christmas joy. For you no child is born, to you no son is given. It's sad, the story of the poor men and women who during the week before last fell down dead in our streets through cruel hunger and bitter cold. But far more pitiable is your fate. Far more terrible shall your condition be your condition in the day when you shall cry for a drop of water to cool your burning tongue, and it will be denied you. When you shall seek for death, for grim cold death, seek for him as a friend, and yet you shall not find him. For the fire of hell will not consume you, nor its terrors devour you. You shall long to die, you shall long to linger in eternal death, dying every hour, yet never receiving the much-coveted release by death. What will I say to you this morning? Oh, Master, help me speak the right words for this occasion. I beg you, my hearers, if Christ is not yours this morning, may God the Spirit help you to do what I command you to do now. First of all, confess your sins. Not in my ear, not in any other living person's ears. Go to your bedroom and confess you are vile. Tell him you are a wretch undone without his sovereign grace. But don't think there is any merit in the confession. There is none. All your confession cannot merit forgiveness. Though God has promised to pardon the man who confesses his sin and forsakes it. Imagine that some creditor had a debtor who owed him $500,000. He calls to the man and says, I demand my money. But the debtor says, I owe you nothing. The man could be arrested and thrown into prison. However, the creditor says, I wish to be merciful to you. Make a frank confession, and I will forgive you the debt. Well, says the man, I do acknowledge I owe you $200. No, no, that will not do. Well, sir, I confess I owe you $200,000. And by degrees, he comes to confess that he owes the whole $500,000. Is there any merit in that confession? No. But could you see that no creditor 
would even think of forgiving that debt if you did not acknowledge it? It is the least that you can do to acknowledge your sin. And though there is no merit in the confession, yet true to his promise, God will give you a pardon through Christ. This is one piece of advice. I pray you take it. Do not throw it to the winds. Do not leave it as soon as you leave this place. Take it with you, and may this day become a confession day with you. But next, when you have made a confession, I beg you, renounce yourself. That you, you have been resting perhaps in some hope that you would make yourself better and so save yourself. Give up that delusive fantasy. You have seen the silkworm. It will spin and spin and when it will di- then it will die where it has spun itself a shroud. And your good works are but a spinning for yourself, a robe for your dead soul. You can do nothing by your best prayers, your best tears, your best works to merit eternal life. Why, the Christian who is converted to God will tell you that he cannot live a holy life by himself. If the ship in the sea cannot steer itself aright, do you think the wood that lies in the carpenter's shop can put itself together and make itself into a ship and then go and sail off to America? Yes, that is what you just imagined. The Christian who is God's workmanship can do nothing, and yet you think you can do something. Now give up self. God help you to strike a black mark through every idea of what you think you can do. Then lastly, I pray God help you here, my dear hearers, when you have confessed your sin and given up all help of self-salvation, go to the place, place where Jesus died in agony. Go then in meditation to Calvary. There he hangs. It's the middle cross of the three. I think I see him now. I see his poor, emaciated face. Has his face more marred than any of man? I see the beady drops of the blood still standing around his pierced temples, marks of that rugged crown of thrones, thorns. Yes, I see his naked body, naked to his shame. We can count all his bones. See there his hands ripped open with rough iron and his feet torn with nails. The nails were, have ripped through his flesh. There is now not only the holes through which the nails were driven, but the weight of his body is sunken on his feet. And see the iron is tearing through his flesh. And now the weight of his body hangs on his arms and the nails are severing through his tender nerves. Hark! The earth is startled. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, sinner, have you ever heard a shriek like that? God has forsaken him. His God has ceased to be gracious to him. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. But listen, he cries, I am thirsty. Give him water. Give him water. You holy women, give him water. Let him drink, but know his murders torture him s'more. They thrust into his mouth the vinegar mingled with the gall, the bitter with the sharp, the vinegar and the gall. At last, hear him, sinner, for here is your hope. Here is your hope. I see him now, his awful head. The king of heaven dies. The God who made the earth has become a man, and the man is about to die. 
hear him. He cries, it is finished. He gives up his spirit. The atonement is finished. The price is paid. The bloody ransom counted down. The sacrifice is accepted. It is finished. Sinners, believe in Christ. Throw yourself at his feet. Cast thyself on him. Sink or swim. Take him to be thy all in all. Throw now your trembling arms around that bleeding body. Sit now at the foot of the cross and feel the droppings of the precious blood. And as each one of you go out of this place today, say in your hearts, a guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on Christ's arms I fall. He is my strength and my righteousness, my Jesus and my all. God grant you grace to do so for Jesus Christ's sake. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen Amen. and amen. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you have taught us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But Jesus Christ has one last question for us. I am am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Your answer, my beloved, is that the question has eternal consequences. To reject Jesus Christ will damn your soul to hell. But if to us a child is born and we have become like children, and if to us a son is given and we have, been given, we have given ourselves to Christ, then to us a Savior, Jesus Christ, is ours. I pray that we all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, John 6, 47. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.